The following is a conversation with Kenny Robertson. Kenny served 22 years as a U.S. Army Green Beret from the 5th Special Forces Group. He is also the founder of Mission Medics, a training company dedicated to preparing schools, corporations, and high net worth individuals for real life emergency scenarios using Special Forces Medics basics. During his tenure, Kenny spent multiple tours in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Lebanon. He wrote medical programs for the U.S. Embassy in Beirut and trained forces across the globe. He also has a dedicated clinic named after him in the Middle East. Kenny served as the Director of Tactical Casualty Combat Care and Prolonged Field Care Programs at the Joint Special Operations Medical Training Facility at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. During his tenure in the military, he also trained hundreds of Green Berets and Navy SEAL medics. Kenny just returned from his humanitarian work in Ukraine, training Ukrainian army soldiers and medics on US Special Forces combat medic protocol. His work in Ukraine was recently featured on ABC World News Tonight and Good Morning America. This conversation dabbles in discussing the war in Ukraine and what the state of school shootings are in the United States, which is another area of Kenny's expertise. And the war in Ukraine continues in its sixth month, and the school shooting epidemic is back in the news after the horrific incident at Uvalde, Texas. Kenny has unique perspectives on both, and I really enjoyed his conversation. So without further ado, here's Kenny Robertson, Green Beret, humanitarian, and founder of Mission Medics Training. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kenny. I am so excited to chat with you about multiple issues and uh, pick your brain on expertise, but I really wanted to thank you for joining me today and just really kind of turn it over to you to get started. I uh, figured maybe you could provide the listeners with a little bit of your background, uh, give an introduction to yourself. Well, I appreciate you having me on and thanks a lot for, for everything that you're doing out there. and stand strong and really leading the way and and paving the way for for folks to to know that the struggle is real the fight's real but it's a wonderful fight and you're yeah. you're proving that to everybody and i want to say thank you for that thank you so uh so my name is kenny robertson and i am a retired u.s army green beret i spent 22 total years in the military uh, I dabbled in the Marine Corps a little bit and then got into the Army and crossed the crossed over to the other side and never looked back. Uh, but during that time... When you I say crossed over of, the other side, what do you mean by that, Kenny? Yeah, so I was in the regular traditional Army, as most people would, would know about. Uh, I did some time in the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, a lot of folks are familiar with that, the Band of Brothers. Uh, and... It was great, but I just thought of myself as doing something different uh, and really broadening the horizons. So I found going into the special forces uh, a unique challenge, but very rewarding. Uh, there's lots of jobs available in the Army, Marines, Navy, any of the service and, and branches, but I found that going into the Green Berets were really what was for me. And it's because it opened up a lot more doors. It, not only was it extremely challenging, but being able to get into the unit that I was able to get into that opened up a lot more just really explosive and dynamic training options, 
and then really tip of the spear stuff that uh, I got to be firsthand involved with was just unforgettable time. Uh, best job I ever had in my life. Good. So the way that the special forces are broken down for a lot of folks uh, that don't understand is in a 12 man team. And out of these 12, there's going to be a team leader. Uh, he's the only officer uh, besides the warrant officer. I'm not sure he counts. <laughs> uh, and then you've got a team sergeant. He's one of the guys that's been on the team for a long time. He's made the rank of E8. And then you've got a couple of guys specializing in weapons, proficiency, foreign weapons, domestic weapons, tactics, advanced uh, close quarters battle, things like that. Uh, the tactician. And then you've got the communication specialist. You can't go anywhere without having to be able to talk to everybody else in the world, right? So whether that's a network, whether that's radios, um, whatever we need to have as communication platforms, there's a guy on there that, or two guys that are going to specialize in that. And then you got to be able to blow things up. You've got to be able to blow things up and you got to be able to build stuff. So with that, we have an engineer on the team. Uh, so a couple of engineers, they're going to be uh, cross-training everybody else on how to blow things up. That's certainly not my specialty, but I can do it in a pinch. <laughs> and we're going to find ourselves in a pretty sticky situation if somebody's probably going to get hurt in our line of business. So with that being said, there needs to be a medic. Well, this is not just an ordinary medic or the EMT that's going to come and pick you up if you have a heart attack on the golf course or if you have a slip and fall and break an arm. So this EMT is going to be more of a physician's assistant trained in surgical skills, trained as an austere medical doctor, basically. Uh, and that was the route that I chose. And I wanted to do that for several reasons. One, it's something that I can use every day. And I find myself using medicine all the time. And being able to provide frontline medicine was just scratching the surface. Um, and the the skill set is so broad. I've delivered seven babies. I've assisted in open heart surgery. I've worked with a lot of orthopedic cases and helping repair broken bones. Sutures by the thousands. So we have a very good scope of practice, although the special forces medic is very trained and skilled in that. Don't ask us to do clinical medicine because that's not really <laughs> what we love to do. But a triple gunshot wound or missing a leg We've got that under control. That's easy. But <laughs> right. if you come to me and like, man, my shoulder, when I do this, yeah. no, no, I, I don't want to, well, it's not, you don't want to, you don't want to take a stab at the cancer, Kenny. No, you're good. <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely too, way too complicated for me. But, uh, <laughs> no, that it is within our wheelhouse to work on a lot of uh, very critical cases and very unique cases. So we, we challenged throughout the entire year on doing that. So I got to do multiple deployments, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, a lot of folks have. And speaking Arabic, that was my target language. So I did a total submersion course for about six months, and I was pretty fluent in, in the language, which you don't use in Afghanistan. And by that time, we were kind of finishing up Iraq, so I didn't have to use it that much there. Lebanon, I found it quite useful. But uh, then I did a recent trip uh, after retirement. I uh, found that uh, there was a little bit of a void missing by being on the team. So training medicine is essentially what the 18 Delta or any special forces Green Beret, that's what separates the Green Beret from the Navy SEAL. The Green Beret does a lot of their own intelligence gathering and understands which door to go through in order to find the bad guys. Hmm. The Navy SEAL, not taking anything against them. They're amazing human beings. I know 
<laughs> I know a few of them. Hey, and, they, they won and lost the GWAT all by themselves, right? They absolutely did. But uh, <laughs> and there's a book about it, I'm sure. I have a couple. <laughs> but you know. They'll go through the door and they'll kill everything. Um, but sometimes they just don't know which door to go through. And it is just an intelligence piece that they're given a lot of. And we have to develop that. Uh, that's one of the main differences uh, in the, the unconventional warfare piece that we do. But they're amazing at direct action. So I was finding that void that I had from not being a part of that team life anymore. So uh, one of the things that the Green Beret does is we're a force multiplier. So the 12 of us are going to go somewhere and we're not invading your country to win your war. No, but what we are do is there to train three, four, 500 of you to be a little less like you, more like us. We're going to teach you how to shoot, move, communicate, and do medicine. Then we'll teach you a little bit of planning. And then we're going to go with you and advise you and assist you on some operational missions, making you a lot more lethal at your job. And we're kind of in the background a little bit, which we've found doesn't always work. And we're pretty much right there in the front all the time. And we're taking <laughs> some of the brunt of the load. But the object of this uh, idea, at least, is to train, advise, and assist and to force multiply. So that's what we do now. Uh, and I've formulated Mission Medics, missionmedictraining.com. My little plug is a veteran-based organization where it's service-disabled, better-known small business. And we go around teaching trauma medicine. And we'll teach that everywhere, all throughout the continental United States, all throughout Florida, Virginia. We're working in North Carolina. Uh, we're working with some folks in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're, we're all over the place. We're really gaining a lot of traction uh, with a lot of the, we see gun violence every day doesn't matter which news channel you log into it's going to be there and yeah we're going to dive deep into that too yeah, yeah we're going to dive problem. deep into that subject because it's that's a tough one um so yeah that's that's what i love doing is teaching trauma medicine well as everyone knows the war in ukraine broke out yeah and that uh that weighed heavy on a lot of people and there's, I'd say, a strong majority that don't care about this yeah. and they don't yeah. want to see Americans involved. And I get it. I understand that. Yeah. And I was given an opportunity to go over to the eastern portion of Ukraine directly on the Russian-held border because they own a portion of eastern Ukraine. So mm -hmm. the border where they control is where some folks and I went to. And we did that because it was human life. And yeah. I still felt that strong desire to go and help humans. And it doesn't matter the political affiliation. Yeah. It doesn't matter the, you know, other people's opinions. And you're going to hear a lot of talking heads and they're going to have strong opinions about one way or the other. None of that mattered. What mattered was going to help people in need because what a lot of folks don't understand maybe some do and don't care but what a lot of folks don't understand or know is that this war is taking a lot of civilian casualties lots of them they're bombing churches schools malls and there's thousands of innocent people that are suffering because of this and it's not that easy for these folks to just move. Yeah. So I had to see this for myself. 
And uh, I was afforded a plane ticket to go over there. So I took advantage of that to go see for myself what was really going on. How could I help? And how do I embed with folks that really need this assistance? Combat medicine has certainly gone a lot further from me than Iraq and Afghanistan when I took it on an unconventional warfare level to Eastern Ukraine. Mm. And the service that I was able to provide for the folks out there that desperately needed this was absolutely phenomenal because there's about a two hour travel time to get from some of these dangerous frontline areas to higher echelon of care like a hospital. They don't have highly trained medics like we do in the special operations field. They don't have Green Beret medics, Navy SEAL medics, Army Ranger medics. They don't have these types of guys that are able to not just stabilize, but then conduct prolonged field care, conduct minor surgical skills during an evacuation platform. So the primitive methods that are being used are costing a lot of lives. So I felt it was just something that I knew enough about that I kind of felt that weight on me to go over and help people out and teach them what I know and then train, advise, and assist. <clears throat> now, for the listeners out there, I'll tell you, this war is completely different than what we've experienced over the past two decades. And the list goes on of the differences. And if you have time, I'll compare a few of these things. That That's actually was that my I next question. Um, I wanted to know, because um, you have, and maybe you can provide, you know, briefly for the listener, you kind of summarized a little bit at the beginning, your experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, for, for most listeners who would um, be following along here, I'm sure they're familiar. We've been at war in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years or had been until recently. Um, and it would be interesting, I think, to share a little bit about your experience there and explain kind of briefly what unconventional warfare is and how the Taliban exploited that. And then I'd love yeah. to hear, you know, now that you're on the other side of it right now, you're fighting the Russian military, you're the insurgent, you're like the Taliban, um, you know, as we previously talked about, now you're on the other side of uh, a superpower. And so just kind of curious as to your perspective of that, just unconventional warfare in general and how the two, the three battlefields compare? So Iraq was a, a serious initial invasion uh, with the amount of people. You know, the, the presidential administration pulled no punches. They held nothing back and they sent everything. There was thousands of vehicles, troops, personnel moving from Kuwait and taking Iraq. Now, we had weeks to stage, even longer uh, for a lot of units, into Kuwait. We had vehicles. We had fuel. We had food. We had all of the support that you could need going into a battlefield. We were highly prepared and ready for this tons of weapons and ammunition, tons of medical supplies. We were ready to go do battle. We knew what we were going to go do. And that invasion happened relatively swiftly. Uh, during that initial invasion, we were going through uh, from Kuwait up to Baghdad. 
controlling Baghdad with thousands of personnel. Then we're going to Mosul. We're going to Talapar. We're spreading all over the country. We've got airplanes coming in, landing, delivering supplies, men, weapons, and equipment. And that was happening on a daily basis. Then over in Afghanistan, very similar in how that looked. Now we've got thousands of trucks and aircraft. We've got Apache helicopters. We've got these gunships, amazing stuff. We've got Blackhawk helicopters moving guys all around the battlefield, getting from point A to point B, you know, 500 feet in the sky makes things a lot easier. We've got support packages. We've got, you're going out on mission. You've got QRF, quick reaction force. So if I'm gonna go invade this little village, and we're going to go conduct some raids, ambushes, whatever the case may be. If things go wrong, I've got a quick reaction force. I can get on the radio and I've got another team standing there waiting that'll be there in 30 minutes. And they'll come and they'll bring me extra supplies. They'll bring us you know, more men and more guns to the fight, whatever we need. If we've got an issue, we call up Matt. Matt flies in on his Apache He's got overhead cover for us. He can help. That's my husband for, for people who aren't uh, familiar. <laughs> Kenny is a, a friend. World's greatest <laughs> Apache pilot. Of course. My husband is the greatest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but guys like that, that are yeah. owning the sky and yeah. we own the sky in those two conflicts, Iraq and Afghanistan. We've got A-10 Warthogs, Spectre gunships, B-1 bombers. The list goes on. We've got people, we've got a lot of support coming to help you. We've got time to plan a bunch of missions. We've got radios, night vision. We've got lasers, all kinds of beautiful things. <laughs> and we've also got team cohesion with people that you've worked with for the past year, two or three years. You've been there, you're kicking indoors with these guys during training, you're doing medical training, communications, demolitions, everything you're doing this together. You live as a team, you know each other, you know each other's habits. You, you, can, you know who they are when they're walking at night in the dark by the shadows. You know everything about these guys, they're your family. Well, now we fast forward to a more unconventional approach in a different setting than we've had been in the mountainous deserts. And now we're going to Ukraine and it's an entirely different animal because we don't have the United States Army flashing an ID card with an MRAP um, like up armored vehicle that just everybody gets out of the way. We're coming in, we own this battle space. Doesn't work like that over here. You have to figure out one, how to get into the country. You want to take a train? Okay. Hopefully, if you get through customs, they let you in. You want to take a vehicle? We got hemmed up at the vehicle coming through Poland. They didn't like some of the paperwork that was belonging to the vehicle that we were using somebody else to get us on board. We got almost kicked out of Poland. We had to jump into another van of a guy sitting in line to try to get across the border himself and we had to pay this guy enough money to just get us across the border since we were already there there was a 15 mile long line to get into there you can only move during certain hours of the day and around that country there's a curfew if you're out after 11 o'clock or before 6 a.m you're going to jail you're going to the gulag they do yeah. not play around there so now you've got this incredibly long line 
we just move up to the front because, well, we're dirty Americans and we just think we do what we want. <laughs> well, they're not even letting us in. All right, well, how are we going to fix this problem? Luckily, we had enough assets in our pocket to give the guy that had an empty van to crossload $30,000 of medical equipment that we were bringing in with us and all wow. of our personal gear to try to sustain ourselves for a month into the, this guy's van. We get over into Ukraine, the van breaks down. Now we get in three or four kilometers into the country. Now we've got another van and we're getting towed. And now me and the other medic are sitting in the back of this van. There's no windows, there's no lights. We don't know where we're going. Now, this can seem pretty nerve wracking to most people. Yeah. And it was a little nerve wracking to us, but it goes back to the final training exercise that everyone has to go through in order to earn your Green Beret. And that's called Robin Sage. Now, Robin Sage is a one month uh, training deal where you go out for somewhere within like 25 different counties in North Carolina and you infiltrate in an unconventional method, which may be in the back of a van, which may be in a produce truck, which may be posing as a church group out on a missionary assignment, any type of unconventional method to get behind into the enemy lines surreptitiously, and then link up with indigenous forces, and then train them, advise and assist. This was exactly as though we had trained for in Robin Sage, which really, I think, gave us a leg up because, well, although this seems really crazy, we've done this before. Yeah. So we finally get into the country. It's been a, about three days that it took total to get into there. Wow. Uh, we get some rental vehicles. Now, this is something you don't have to worry about when you're in the army and you're going over into this massive war. You don't have to worry about going to get a rental vehicle. You don't have to worry about, you know, insurances on yourself and on these vehicles and where you're going. And so we go over there and we can commandeer these things. How are you going to talk? I don't speak Ukrainian. I speak some broken Arabic now and none of my guys spoke Arabic, I mean, or Ukrainian or Russian. So well, we got to hire interpreters. Well, where are you going to get those from? And what are you asking those guys to do? And how much information do you want them to know? So now we've got to have vetted interpreters to go along with us. Wow. So we make that happen. We had had that set up prior to. So listeners don't get confused. We already had those guys meeting, yeah. meeting us there. So we got our vehicles. We got our Terps. Now off we go. All right. Well, so you're going in this big giant group, uh, you know, safety in numbers. No, it was me and my interpreter <laughs> and a truck. And off we go headed to Russia. Wow. That was probably the strangest feeling that I had was you're alone. Here we are and nobody's coming and we are driving directly into the heart of the beast. This yeah. is a very dangerous war. So we go to our first location. Meanwhile, my other two teammates each had an interpreter and they went to other directions as well. So Three guys, three interpreters, three vehicles, three different directions. Wow. So I head down to uh, my first undisclosed location, and I link up with uh, two Americans that had been there for a couple of months, and they were working with a Ukrainian 
how are you uh, how are you linking up are you how are you i don't mean to reveal any i don't want you to reveal any strategies but are you is it easy to to is there like a way to find each other relatively easy or is are you waiting periods in between communication so you know kevin bacon is like what three degrees separation or something to get kevin bacon yeah six degrees so there's there's always going to be two or three degrees of separation to find another special operator in one area of the world yeah. And I know enough folks that know enough folks that within three phone calls, I've got a guy in Poland or in Romania that's got a guy that's operating in Ukraine. And that guy has been talking to this other guy in this other area of Ukraine. And cool. We've we know who you are, you know who we are. We'll be there on Tuesday. I always say and that. The high school girls have nothing on you guys in terms of your gossiping <laughs> and your awareness because it's, it's a fact. Um, it's Word true, though. It travels That's, fast when another yeah. American is coming to Ukraine. Um, so let me ask you in, in terms of like you getting there, you getting situated, the reality kind of sets in. What is, and I don't want to, I actually don't want to interrupt the organic flow of where you were going with this too much, but I do want to add this question in. Um, what were your in, you know initial impressions of the Russian army and their capability before you got there? And what have been some takeaway reactions, maybe surprises um, in terms of how they operate? And then of course, I do want to get into a little we- a couple weapons questions if I if we can. Um, but just generally speaking, as a very experienced warrior, what is your general overview of the Russian military and how this whole thing has gone down? So having fought against Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS, and knowing how they operate, how they function, even from the beginning of the war, uh, you already knew that they were not nearly as well of a trained group organization or guerrilla soldier as any basic army soldier is out there they're they're not that good they're not that well funded they don't have the best equipment they don't actually train uh they don't handle their weapons with precision the way that we do their standards are much different so we clearly have the advantage on fighting organizations like that Russia is a different story. So to answer your question in the order was what my first initial impressions was respect. I don't like to say that I have no fear. Sure, I'm a human being, we all have fears. I don't like being late to work. It's my only fear. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand that they are more they're they're definitely a more formidable organization than the previous ones that we fought so i give them respect um i still like to think that we're better Um, (laughs) we are i know that well that was my next that's when we but that's when we come as a full package yeah we didn't show up as a full package so it doesn't matter how good we are if there's only a few of us, mm. when there's a hundred of them, a thousand of them. Right. And 
So my initial impression was respect, head on a swivel. We're taking this extremely seriously. We are using every bit of training that we've had to, you know, get through this and make the best of it. Um, but we're out there. So it was, we're still doing this regardless of how, how good we think that they might be in their capabilities. We're still going to go do this um, mm. because we just have that much more belief in ourselves. Well, initially when I, the first link up that I had, uh, I'd always heard a lot of great things about this Ukrainian army. And it's been demonstrated because we all knew Russia was going to take over in what, a, a day, three days, you know, it's yeah. a week they're going to own Ukraine. Yeah. And that didn't happen. So we get a lot of reports like, oh, the Ukrainian army is great, right? They're killing everybody. They're kicking ass. Okay. So let's give that due respect to Ukraine. So I know that I'm falling in uh, and getting embedded with some really solid dudes. Yeah. I was, I was a little shocked. Um, with my initial impression. And I think the the main reason was because the war fighting style is different. Mm. So previously, we're going house to house. We're literally breaching a door. We're going inside. We're going close quarters battle. We're owning that battle space. We've got folks in the air. Here, the Russians on the air. We don't own it. They do. And air power is everything. So one of the first lessons that I learned when I was there was do not stand around outside unless you're under a tree or some type of cover. Something that I know about, but really wasn't used to that being like in the ingrained action that you take is their drones they're flying drones all over the place. So you can sit back, way back here, three kilometers back, four kilometers back, and you can fly your little drone 500 meters, 1,500 feet up in the air, four kilometers out, which is about three miles, roughly. And you can see everything that's going on down there. And you from the ground can't see that drone, can't hear it. They're small. They're like little, really nice ones from Best Buy. Yeah, That's what they're flying around. And they've got these 4K cameras on there with these high powered zooms and they can see you and they can see a few trucks parked in the same area that usually are not there. And they might see one or two soldiers or something going around. Well, Russia's been planning this for a while, which means that they've been stacking up all their ammunition and ordnance for a while. Maybe 24 hours around the clock, just thousands and thousands of munitions being piled up. So it's nothing for them to just drop 30 rounds on that. And you know what, that doesn't look right. And they don't care about civilian casualties. They don't. So, oh, it was just a family. Oh, well, we're trying to own that battle space anyways. That's what their opinion is, is we're going to put a bunch of rounds out there on target, you know, five, 10 clicks away. And then once we've softened everything up, we're just going to move into that spot. And now this is our new defensive positions. And then we're going to send artillery for the next five, 10 kilometers out. We're going to de demolish everything, kill everybody, and make sure everybody's left leaves. And then we're going to move into that space. 
and it's just a slow forward progression. When that's the scary part is that these indirect fire, these mortars, these tank rounds, these rockets, you don't know they're coming. When you do hear them, they're right there and there's nothing you can do. So I stayed there and we did some things and some stuff. Uh, and then I also did a, quite a bit of training with a lot of the soldiers that were there and did a lot of medical training. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so are you training, if you can talk about it, are you training yeah. soldiers or are you training other medical personnel, both? Is it? It's a mixture of both, but every soldier needs to have a basic skill set and a basic yeah. level of medical knowledge. So exsanguination is the number one cause of preventable death in the world. And you'll hear me say that a thousand times because it's true and it's preventable. So everybody needs to know how to handle these traumatic situations. Multi-system trauma patients all need to have the same sequence of care in order to effectively stabilize that patient until medical help can get there. So I want to ensure that everybody gets that baseline knowledge so that it's more of a, we're not, we're not going to have needlessly lost a lot of lives. All right. So we can keep a lot of folks out on the battlefield. So I left this unit to go, another unit needed some assistance. As soon as I left, a rocket attacked the unit that I was at previously uh, and killed two of the guys that I was just training the day before, wounded a dozen others. And maybe some of those, a couple of those lives would have been lost that were wounded, but the medical training that they received just two days before did save some lives. Uh, and that doesn't make up for any of the lost lives that we had. Um, but that's still but it was a very, very yeah, unfortunate. It could have been, um, been worse. It, yeah. it could have been. So I know that we're doing some really good things on that front, just from that specific scenario uh, alone. Um, so then I go, I go help some other folks and uh, we do a couple of days of training and really made a great impact. We, we must have trained over 100 soldiers um, mm -hmm. during those days that I was there until I went to my another place called Kharkiv. So Kharkiv, we linked up with some folks and we we got maybe a little further than we should have been. Maybe I took a wrong turn on the GPS, uh, but a drone found us and I heard the tank round get shot off and then I heard a loud whizzing and I rolled to my left and it passed by me. It was, it's probably seemed much closer than it was, but it felt like it was right on top of me, but it was probably a good 10 or 15 meters above me and landed 30 or 40 meters, maybe behind me. I, I, I've got imagery of, of the impact and the blast uh, of that specific one. So I got into a bunker that was nearby and then uh, we just got pounded. There was three of us in this bunker. Um, no, four of us. It was me and my interpreter and a couple of uh, Ukrainian soldiers. And the indirect fire just kept coming and just pounding on us. Uh, and they'll do that for 30 or 40 minutes and then they'll stop. 
So I went out and did a battle damage assessment and saw just dozens of craters in the ground. And maybe three or four hours later, they would drop another four or five rounds. So we were next to a school and the school was completely bombed out, which was saddening because that's a school. Um, yeah. And, you know, we think over here is bad as it is. Over there, it was even worse. There's, there's rockets and bombs coming in there. Yeah. So the very next day, I was in a very similar, very pretty, pretty close to the same spot. Um, which for everybody out there that wants to Monday morning quarterback and critique me, was kind of where I, I needed to be. Yeah. <laughs> once again, they drone spotted me. Yeah. Uh, so I heard the tank round again, but this time I couldn't even get out of the way and it impacted the building that I was standing next to. I was about five meters, about 15 feet or so from this. It completely leveled it. Uh, wow. I got my bell rung pretty good. Um, got a little you okay though? Not, I mean, that's a, I don't know what kind of question that is. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, no, never. You, I mean, honestly, bell wrong, the, start no, of the, the start of the story, you already knew there was something wrong with me, right? I <laughs> said, sure. yeah, sure, I'll go over there. And, and but this is a podcast for unconventional people. So there's a reason you're that's, on here. <laughs> that's true. So, yeah, I guess I got to screw loose just by going over there. But, uh, yeah, and going back. Yeah, sure. We'll get you know, to, it, uh, yes. <laughs> and so then again, I got down into this to the bunker and uh that they let us have it again and concrete is just coming down from the from the ceiling of the bunker and it's uh it's not something that i'm used to we're used to being the ones delivering that and that's not that way anymore and guess what nobody's coming so you can, you can get on a radio, nobody's coming. You don't have your own tank to go and attack their tank. No, we can't call in the Apache gunship and go take out that thing. What we can do is creep around on the front line and put yourself, you're just out there with a couple of guys and you can watch and see if you can find them but that's not a humanitarian medical mission. Yeah. So where, at what point do we become a, a combatant versus the humanitarian medical guy? Which was my next question for you. Um, yeah, I mean, out of the American presence, what what is your opinion of the American presence there? Uh, how significant is it? Um, what impact are we making? And then of course, I want to pick your brain about weapons, but um you know what what is what in contribution are we having right now in a meaningful way uh based on your just the time that you've been over there so far so i want to backtrack a little bit to a question that you asked before was what was your initial impression and i said respect yeah but then the follow-on question was but then afterwards mm -hmm. When I realized their electronic warfare and their drone warfare were as good as they were, 
and they targeted one dude in the middle of nowhere that yeah. was twice then it was a lot more than respect it was more of a oh shit these dudes yeah. are they're good mm-hmm. but they missed me <laughs> so i don't know who won that one right of course <laughs> uh, i'm glad you did but yeah <laughs> i'm glad i did too uh, i'm glad you did but yeah that's a yeah that was, that was a close one that was a little sketchy yeah. but the american presence over there is you would be you would be shocked maybe you wouldn't be but a lot of folks would be i don't know every american that's over there and we just recently lost two more mm, i heard yeah um july 18th so we've got a lot of guys that have gone over there that don't have as much training as me they go over there for no money they go over there because they have a heart to want to go and help people Now, lots of folks are going to say, no, they're just warmongers and they just want to go kill Russians. I've seen countless amounts of people over there not doing that. They're going over to help, whether it's doing logistics, whether it's help with, I will just go and give people rides for evacuation, whether people just need um, other types of training that they're not out, oh, we're out killing Russians. It's not what a lot of these guys are about. They're about, listen, I've got some military training. I did 10 years in the infantry. What can I do to help? And they're coming out of, they're coming there a lot of times on their own dime, or they'll get a little bit of sponsorship to, you know, help them maybe cover the, you know, their flights and, and things like that over there. And that is what is helping these Ukrainian folks win this thing. It's not we're taking over. America is certainly donated quite a bit of money. Yeah. Where that money has gone, I don't know. I think a lot of folks don't know, but you know, it's apparently the over there. Well, but- that yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of um, you know, we've sent billions now if and javelin missiles, right? And mm-hmm. um, you know, all these things. I'm just kind of curious how have you seen the proliferation, excuse me, of the um, American financial presence? Have you seen more sophisticated weaponry? I mean, is it filtering down or is it just another scheme from Washington to to the elites, you know, because and if so, I would love to know how the Javelin missile compares to like a Russian tank and their reactive armor, which I've heard quite a bit about. Um, And so actually, really awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was curious if you've seen any of that in action. So I happen to have seen just passing at a glance. There are lots of stingers and a stinger will take down a helicopter. There may or may not be guys that I was talking about earlier that are pushed out forward on the front line to observe and they may have a stinger with them just in case American weapons are making their way to the front line. The javelin, amazing 
awesome weapon. You need to have a clue, which is another device that makes it work. It's mm -hmm. like having a, an AR-15 or any other magazine-fed weapon, and you don't mm -hmm. have a magazine with the bullets. Oh, okay, yeah. It's not really going to work. Right. Well, the clue is going to be controlled by some general who is signed for it, and that clue is going to be sitting in his warehouse somewhere locked up. Nobody knows how to access that. Oh, and by the way, that's like 300 kilometers on the other side of the country. So, yes, our equipment's getting over there. One of the downfalls of it is the training to use it. What they need more of is counter drone equipment. And I've actually been working with a specialist to work with bringing counter drones uh, back over there to take out the drones and the drone operators. That's huge. If their drones are out of the sky, they won't own the sky as mm. they do right now. Right. So not only if I gave you a really fancy piece of equipment and you're like, well, where's the user's manual? I don't know how to use this thing. And I'm yeah. like, well, you've got the equipment. That's going to be the disconnect. So we have to involve the training as well as the maintenance um, on all these pieces of equipment. So if you're not getting guys properly trained on using javelins, stingers, the HIMARS, these uh, counter drone stuff, they're practically useless. Mm. So that's one of the small disconnects that there are is getting that availability out there to the front lines. The HIMARS is another thing that uh, is really made an impact. That is probably one of the biggest pieces of, of asset of equipment that we've had move to the front line. And what that is, is essentially like a, a truck that's got a bunch of rockets that fire off of the back of it. Mm. And they'll travel very long distances and they will wipe out, uh, I believe just a, a couple of weeks ago, I get a lot of information daily fed to me, intelligence reports, so, so I can stay up on it um, because of my future plans to go back, which we'll touch on later. Yeah. Um, these things have just wiped out three ammunition depots. And that's yeah. huge when you're looking at thousands and thousands of rounds that are sitting in an ammunition depot. And one of these vehicles that I believe we've now got four over there and we are getting four more, which is a ginormous asset. That's as uh, seemingly as good as a battleship uh, in, wow. as far as how this war is going right now. The high how, are Why is that exactly? How is, can you explain for civilians who don't understand? Uh, I don't even, I don't know about this either. Um, yeah. is, it, is it just the, can you like briefly explain how it works? Yeah, so if I want to take out a target in this situation that we'll talk about, the ammunition depot, right? These, uh, these giant warehouses of ammunition that the Russians possess, well, I can't get close to that thing. Those things are so well guarded. You're not getting within 10 kilometers of that. Like, mm -hmm. absolutely no way. But if I can drive a truck and I can park it and position it somewhere in the bushes, camouflage up and it doesn't see, and I've got like 16 rockets on the back of that, and we're talking about like, I don't know the exact dimensions, but it's roughly 15 foot long rockets that are, you know, 12, 15 inches wide with circumference or diameter, then that's going to fire that 10, 12, 15 kilometers. And that's going to be able to take out that target. It's going to be laser guided. 
there's going to be you know guys in there with some electronics you're typing in the grid coordinates and off these rockets go and it's very impressive sight it's not much bigger than you know a small school bus and it's going to have these giant rockets on there that are going to eliminate these massive targets from a very far distance at precision pinpoint wow so, so how how well do you think the ukrainians are exploiting the russians weakness then with these weapons this is one of the this war is give and take um the russians owned kharkiv just a month and a half six seven eight weeks ago they owned kharkiv so Kharkiv, so you're going to hear on the news a few major cities. So just to give you a graphic representation uh, of this map, Ukraine is very large. It's maybe the third of the size of the United States. Uh, it takes a couple of days to travel across it. Okay, it takes, wow. it's about a 16, 18 hour trip uh, to drive across it, width-wise. North and south, you can do it in probably 12 hours. So on the on the western side of it, because on the east side is Russia. Okay, so Russia borders Ukraine on the on Ukraine's east. On the west, it's bordered by Romania and Poland. So that's typically where a lot of folks travel from, all right, from Poland and, and Romania to get into the country. And then to the north of Ukraine is Kyiv. That's one of the major cities that you hear about on the news yeah. whenever you hear of Ukraine. So that's going to be in the north. Kiev is relatively safe. You can freely operate and have an apartment in Kiev. Everything is going to be fine. There's still most places are open for business. There's thousands of people walking the street like a little New York City. It's still very economically friendly. It's bolstering. There's high-end hotels and restaurants that you can still go to and everything's functioning relatively normal well if you take about a five hour drive southeast you're going to end up in a town called kharkiv which was not too long ago within about eight weeks or so was owned by the russians now kharkiv is it's still standing but nearly every building has got hundreds of bullet holes missing windows everything is boarded up and most buildings have bomb either the roof or the sides of the buildings have been hit by rockets mortars tanks something like that um at nighttime it gets dark around nine o'clock at night there are no lights whatsoever in the city everything is 100 blacked out it's very eerie imagine mm -hmm. being in a like i wouldn't say new york is not that big but a, a city similar and there was not one single light. Yeah, that's pretty eerie. Anywhere. Yeah. It's very eerie and because they don't want to give away any positions. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit of a ghost town. There's not many people that are still living there, but it is still a semi-functioning city. You can still mm -hmm. go get coffee at coffee shops and dinner, but restaurants are going to close down about 7 p.m. because everybody needs to get out of there, get on their little bus or their train or whatever, and get back home uh, before the curfew. And the rockets are going to start coming. 
and so we'll be... the curfew. It, can you tell me about the curfew? Who's mm-hmm. imposing that? I'm sure it's the Ukrainian government, but the Ukrainian government. Ukrainian, then the soldiers are policing it against fellow yes. Ukrainians as well. Okay. So there are checkpoints every direction that you try to travel. There's going to be a checkpoint within three or four kilometers. And these checkpoints are going to be the large concrete barriers. You're going to have to S curve to get through them. And then there's going to be uh, a few soldiers that are going to be there. You need to have some documentation. They're going to be looking at your license plates. So in Ukraine, it's similar to the, the United States where you have a, you know, a Georgia license plate or a New York license plate. You can tell, oh, we well, are in Texas and you got a New York license plate yeah. or a California mm-hmm. license plate, you know, go, go back, right? Uh, same night here in Florida. Yeah. We see the New York plates, we're like, nope, not a yeah. cloud north. No, right? no. <laughs> Well, they're the same way in Ukraine. Their lettering system dictate, oh, well, this is from the Western part. Um, Western Ukraine is beautiful. It's a place that, you know, normal folks that we all know would love to live or vacation to. Rolling green hills and friendly people, little villages, everything is, it's beautiful. You go to Eastern Ukraine and you cross the railroad tracks. It's a totally different country, all within the same. Same with some of the cities. You've got this bolstering neighborhood just five minutes down the road, and then over here is the projects. Where Ukraine is that way. The eastern Ukraine and western Ukraine are totally different. The closer you go to Poland and Romania, the more luxurious and beautiful it is. But eastern Ukraine, where we are, at the Russian side, it is very Soviet-esque. They're going to lock down the streets. If your vehicle is out at 11 o'clock, you're going to get pulled over. And if you're not in the military, you're going to the gulag. Um, there's passwords and things if you're with the government that you can get by, but civilians don't know that and they're not going to give that information out. Don't have weapons. Do not have weapons. And when you go through a checkpoint, that checkpoint is not just let me look at your license tag and see what area you're from. You better have your documents, your passport, your driver's license if you're a local. What are you carrying in your truck? You have, by being on the roads, you've given them permission to search everything. Wow. So they're going to look through your duffel bag. They're going to look through whatever you're carrying if they want to. And we only actually, after, I don't know, 100 checkpoints that I'd gone through, a lot of them were very happy and thankful that an American paramedic was there to help them and train forces and be on the front line and they were gracious about it. And I was giving them pro tips about some of the equipment that they were wearing <laughs> and how to use yeah. it uh, properly. But some, there was some that you got to think that's actually old Russia. Ukraine used to be Russia. So there's still some of the older folks out there. Their family is Russian. Their grandparents, yeah. they're, they've got close connections and ties to there and they're sympathetic to that cause, right? So these guys are partisans. You don't know, oh, just as you were in a Ukrainian uniform, we're still in a very sketchy area. You could be yeah. a partisan. And I have known people, Americans that I've worked with while I was over there that have been detained mm-hmm. by just passing through checkpoints, wanting all this information, running. Why are you uh, here? So, what are you doing? And yeah. there's... And now just talking to anybody that you speak to, you're talking to them with a lot of caution. Every word that you say, 
can then be used against you and you don't know where it's going. What are you dressing? How are you, you know, how do you look? Do you look like a target? Do you look like an American? Thankfully, you know, I can blend in as a European, <laughs> yeah. obviously, right? Um, but you know, still people, they'll still yeah. identify you. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it helps when I'm wearing a Boston hat. Like that. You know, <laughs> it kind of, it might throw a little uh, red flags out there. Yeah, but we've got some, we've got some American presence, but we have to keep it really low key. Yeah. But a lot of the Ukrainians are very appreciative of guys like us being over there and willing to help out. I'm not willing yeah, to die that, for their country. Yeah. I'm willing to go over there with my skill set and teach you, you know, you teach these Ukrainians how to not die. Yeah. How do you feel about what's happening now? And I mean, obviously you're going to go back over there. Um, so if you can share a little bit about what your expectations are, what's going to take you back. Um, but what do you see as an outcome here? You know, the, the whole idea behind this is the force multiplying, right? So the force multiplying that I've talked about before is the more people that I can train, the easier it is to work myself out of a job. So I'm organizing a, a fundraising campaign to try to get uh, some funds to set an entire team, uh, a larger team this time, um, very well equipped with medical gear to go and train. We've got a, a 90 day program and a six month program. And within that six month program, we can train up to about 5,000 people. Wow. That is the effect that we're looking to go for is I'm not going over there to win the war in Ukraine. What I am going over there to do is make a lot more people a lot more knowledgeable about warfighting skills, specifically in medicine, so that they can be a lot more combat effective and they can win their own war. Mm -hmm. Because I've had, I don't have a cost analysis on a dollar figure, millions of dollars in training that the government has given to me. Well, what am I doing with it now? Mm. I need to do something with that because I still want to do something with that. I'm still passionate about doing something with that. And I've got a lot of knowledge in this head. So I need to get it out there. Right? So who needs it? Well, there's a war going on over there. So, well, those folks, they don't have the resources and the money to come over here and go through months or years and millions of dollars of training and all that. I've got the resources in my head. I just need a few more resources to get back over there and show everyone else, everybody that I can, what it is that I know, what I've learned, and how to be a better warfighter. So that's really the grand plan of everything is to have 5,000 medics running around that battlefield. And that, that will save lives. Yeah. And if I can save one life, a hundred lives, that number is, as long as it's somebody, yeah. that person is going to go home to their family one day. That person is going to raise their son or daughter. That person is going to be able to hang out with their brother or sister. That person is going to be able to live a full, happy, healthy life for many years after whatever incident happened because of what I was able to bring to them. 
And that's what matters to me most. And I get so many times that when I speak to people and I mention a background, if they ask and they'll, oh, well, that's cool. You know, you were special forces and uh, you deployed. How many people did you kill? One, like, I, that's not a question that I'm comfortable answering, but two. Who really ask that? People ask that question all the time. Everybody that I know, they get asked the same question. Wow. I don't know. Everybody's a closet sicko, I guess. I guess I would never be so poor crass and I right? think aggressive enough to ask uh, someone who has been a professional a, warrior a, how many people they've killed. People have heard yeah. a lot. One of the questions that I don't get is how many people would you have to save? Yeah. And that's a much more important and impactful number to me. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I, you know, one day we're all going to go. We all are. But that's mm -hmm. what I want to be known for is the guy that wanted to go out and help people. So okay. this is, this is a technique that I can use to do that. And I'm, I'm pretty okay at this whole war fighting thing. I've done it for a little while. So yeah, let me bit. help some other people out that need it. Um, I'm just trying to do it in a slightly less combative capacity this time. Uh, so if and, someone wanted to, before we switch gears to um, yeah. your other expertise, which I want um, our listeners to get a thorough understanding of as well, it can someone who's interested in supporting your efforts, can they contribute to the crowdfund yet? Is that forthcoming? How would you recommend people stay and engaged in that fight that you're, you're pursuing? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've been working with a few uh, donors that are interested in humanitarian missions, specifically uh, this one, uh, missionmedicstraining.com is my website. It's got all the contact information on there. Uh, there's, there's links to uh, donation pages on there. There's also uh, my email address on there that we can correspond and and iron out any of the questions that that people might have. Uh, is this is just my way of this is what I enjoy doing in life. This is uh, yeah. this is what I want to do. So well, I want to switch gears with you, and um, yeah. so it's going to seem like a big leap potentially for um, listeners, but. I want to talk to you about your passion for training, um, not just in school environments, but in civilian environments. Um, I want to zero in on the schools um, because unfortunately, you know, why you've been in Ukraine or it actually might've happened before you left. I'm sure you're familiar with the Uvalde elementary school shooting. Um, you and I go way back and we have talked many times about many school shootings and one that you brought uh, to my attention was the um, unfortunate shooting that <clears throat> happened in um, just close to you in Florida, uh, Parkland. And so I want to kind of give readers an understanding of, of what you do, right? So you're training pretty much when you're not in the Ukraine saving people's lives, you are home and you do train to not just trauma, not just for trauma medicine, but also for like shooting scenarios can give people an understanding right. of what that is that you train and how it applies specifically to schools. So as you mentioned, Parkland, Uvalde, we can go back to Columbine, Sandy Hook. We can talk about 235 others, literally. 
shocking number. A lot of folks don't know that there's literally been that many. Um, but since there's not 10 or 15 or 17 or 19 that were killed, the numbers being a little bit lower, maybe it's one or two or three, a lot of folks don't get the, doesn't get the exposure, but it doesn't take away from the importance of the necessary requirement of fixing this. Now, all of our talks and legislation and the political news hacks and every talking head out there wants to focus on one thing, one agenda, and that's gun safety or gun violence and gun reform and banning guns and assault weapons and fully automatic semi shotgun AR-15 M9 rifle machine guns. They don't even have any of the words correct, but they want to ban and do all these things to this. We need more background checks. Yeah, you know what? Maybe so. Maybe we should do some kind of serious gun reform. I like guns. I've got I've got a gun or two. I can't remember. They're down there yeah. safe. Voting locked up. Right. So, but sure, not everybody needs a gun. Not everybody. I mean, yes, Second Amendment rights. There's constitutional laws that protect us, but we both know not everybody out there deserves to be carrying around a gun because there are nutcases. So we need to talk about mental health. Sure. What kind of rabbit hole does that go down in order to qualify to be able to carry a pistol? And then, okay, well, you've got to get a concealed carry license. That's a 45-minute course where yeah. now you can shoot simunition rounds in your own home and qualify for a concealed carry. Okay, so that's a big issue. That probably needs to be addressed. So we can talk these gun laws and the gun reform all day, and I don't want to do that. My interest lies in another major piece of this puzzle. Why doesn't that seventh grade math teacher that's in the classroom with that child that was just assaulted by whatever gun, whatever legality or illegality that it was possessed and owned by, whomever's dad signed off on it, whether he was 18, 21, or 15, it doesn't matter. What matters now is that we've got a wounded child, a 13-year-old in the classroom that's hemorrhaging uncontrollably. And who's going to fix that? Who's going to help her? The school nurse? Well, there's four more kids down the hall that are also injured. School nurse is not going to do mass casualty and triage. So, okay, well, the paramedics are going to be here because somebody's calling 911. Sure. Yeah, you're right. Before the paramedics can come in there and do what they've got to do, who else needs to show up? Police. Mm -hmm. Uvalde police. If it takes them an hour to get in there, yeah. it takes less than a minute to bleed out. It takes... 40% of your blood volume to exit your body onto the floor, which in a femoral artery is about the size of your finger, can be out of your body in a minute. And once that happens, there's nothing else that can take place in order to help you survive except a blood transfusion. That's not going to happen anytime soon. 
They're not even carrying it on the paramedic trucks. So before the paramedics can come in, the police have got to do their job. And as we've seen, that can take a while. Not only is their job maybe taking that hour, but their job is to neutralize the threat, not to take care of your 13-year-old daughter that's laying there bleeding in the classroom. But that seventh grade English teacher, why can't he do something? Well, because he's an English teacher. He doesn't have that kind of training. I don't think that flies anymore. I don't think that that's a very good argument or case in any school system in this country. Not after what we've seen time and time again. How many news reports, how many loss of lives, how many gun reform bills are going to pass or fail before we actually take some action, before parents in the PTA stand up and say, enough is enough. I want my teachers trained. I want my, my kids at school to at least have a fighting chance. Where are the tourniquets? Where are the pressure dressings? Where are the chest seals? Does our teacher, does Miss Smith in algebra, does she know how to put on a tourniquet? That's, yeah. not a, that's not a task that any human being should not know how to do. If you don't know how to stop the bleed, which is the number one cause of preventable death, is exsanguination. You've heard me say it before. You'll hear me say it a million times. If you can't stop the bleed, you're wrong. And you need to find some training. You can find it online. You can find it at the local fire department. Or you can bring in mission medics training and special operations combat medical veterans that will come in and teach school systems nationwide on active shooter protocols, what to do if there's an incident. We're going to do a threat vulnerability assessment. First off, what's unsafe about your school? We're going to try to break in and figure this out. We're going mm -hmm. to try to identify all the weak spots. If we're the bad guy, what are we going to do? We're, we can figure that out. So we can figure out how to stop guys from coming in. Now, let's say they do. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle that? Now, if there's a traumatic situation, how are we going to handle the traumatic situation? We use hyper-realistic training, arms, legs, full body mannequins, the latest and greatest stuff, some things that aren't even out on the market yet. We've got some really cutting edge, beautiful training equipment. And we have a very simple algorithm that we teach by the numbers. It's a building block phase, crawl, walk, run. By the end of our one training day, you are comfortable as the end user, as the operator, to pick up a robust first aid kit that we supply to the schools, not the ones that have got a Band-Aid and antiseptic wipe. They're not going to yeah. do anything for a gunshot wound to the shoulder or a gunshot wound to the knee. You've got to have tourniquets, pressure dressing, chest seals, and you need to know how to do it. Again, like I was talking about the equipment in Ukraine, if I give you this, this widget, this gadget, and say, here it is, this thing is $50,000, and it's going to do some great stuff. And you're like, great, where's the user's manual? Without the training, yeah, it's pointless. It's useless. It's just a big paperweight. So we come in and provide that training. And this is something that every school needs. Every teacher needs it, but at least a percentage of all these folks, because we, this, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to upset anybody when I say that many of these wound patterns that I saw in Parkland 
these children could be walking around today and enjoying a happy, healthy life had there been this medical gear and the training that we provide. And it's not just, this isn't a business pitch. This is go get yourself some training somewhere. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be from me. I mean, I'm pretty busy. I mean, I'd love <laughs> to come out and train all the schools. Uh, absolutely yeah. sure would. But go find some training and train your tribe. Yeah. I've heard that before. A hundred percent. And it's true. And so, you know, you were talking about Parkland. I don't think I didn't know this until you had shared this with me. Um, when you were talking about the wound pattern. So what actually happened at Parkland in terms of um, the, the poor medical response? Um, I know for people who aren't familiar with what happened, can you kind of share a little bit about that? And then maybe explain, uh, and the reason why I zoomed in on Parkland is it's really close to you and um, yeah. where you're located in Florida. And it was a horrific um, mass shooting, but I also wanted to kind of pick your brain about in context there, what should have been done differently? What could have been done differently to change the outcome? So not unique to Parkland because it happens at every one of these school shootings. Matter of fact, I, I just, I was down in Miami beach a couple of days ago and I saw signs, active shooter training in session at this school. I was a little disappointed that I didn't get the phone call to come train, but I was very happy to see that the, what I've been preaching on for a, a very long time, other folks are actually taking some initiative and getting this done. But what happened at Parkland? So, you know, we're in the year... 2022 now this happened in 2018 every kid had a cell phone every come on since what 20 probably 10 mm -hmm. every 10 year old and above has got a cell phone and so nick cruz was the shooter and he comes from the east onto the school grounds and he goes from east to west throughout the entire campus his last victims were on the football field in the very west. And then he walked all the way around outside of the campus to a McDonald's, sat down at McDonald's with one of the victim's brothers. While that happened, you know when these gunshots go off, every kid in the school is going to be on their cell phone dialing 911 dialing their parents dialing their friends that that word got out in what a minute yeah 60 seconds 90 seconds there was probably 900 phones going off 911 dispatch lit up every line so what does that mean every car is now every vehicle that that police department owns is going to that school. Mm. So what do you got? 25 vehicles trying to cram into there. How many parents are showing up? You know, yeah. another 50 wow. cars of parents showing up. Yeah. How many news crews? How many other folks 
fire, rescue. In three minutes, five minutes, and seven minutes later, that place is, you can't get within two miles of that place. Mm. You can't get in. Well, that's the response time for some of these rescue personnel. I was talking to some of the rescue personnel on the scene. They're like, Kenny, we were about half a mile away. Like, you couldn't even get in there. Literally had to grab your bag and run. I mean, if you're as out of shape as me, it's going to take you, it'll take you a few minutes. Yeah. To get there. (laughs) I I don't want to be there, be laying on the ground bleeding or, uh, you know, gunshot wound to the, thoracic cavity, getting a sucking chest wound, dying of attention to a thorax. And I got somebody running a half mile away to, with a paramedic bag. Why doesn't Mr. Jones, why doesn't he have a little bit of life-saving capability? Can't he just put a chest seal on there? Yeah. Can't they pack a junctional wound with some Celox Rapid, stop that bleeding, prevent that tension in the thorax? Clearly I'm going into shock because I've lost so much blood and you can tell that by my skin. You get all this information in the training. We stop and bleed. We elevate his feet, keep him warm. He's going to survive for the next hour. We just stabilize this guy for the next hour for this this child. Now when the paramedics finally do get there, which takes over 30 or 40 minutes, during that time, we had a 14-year-old girl die with a gunshot wound to the patella, which is the kneecap. Wow. And we lost that innocent life because our school teachers might be able to teach advanced calculus, but they can't put on a tourniquet. Yeah. And only one of those subjects matter at that time. Yeah. 100%. Oh, it's, it's truly heartbreaking. And I don't, um, you know, one of the other things that I, I've seen kind of come out as these potential solutions and everyone's, you know, of course got ideas and we don't want to get into too many of those, but um, one of the other solutions that I've seen is teachers carrying their firearms into the classroom. What are your opinions about that as a, an operator and as a warrior yourself versus, you know, this type of training, both strategies are, are you know, is there um, room for both or, Obviously, you know, the first date is the easiest, but what are your, what are your opinions on the uh, firearms in the classroom versus this type of training or both? Well, you're not going to catch me out of the house without yeah. a firearm. Likewise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, this and no, but <laughs> how effective is that going to be? Highly effective, if you ask me. If one, any potential shooter with the newfound knowledge of there's probably 10 guns inside of that zoo. No, I want to go, if I'm going to attack some, uh, do a mass casualties type situation, if I want to cause grave bodily harm, injury, and death, I want to do that on a soft target. A soft target is a no, a gun-free zone right? Like Starbucks. Yeah. Places where you can't have guns. Like, well, nobody in here has got a gun. So it's all me. I'm the only one in here with a gun. Now, if we start arming teachers, 
that could change the psyche a little bit of the person that's going in there. So that's, I would say, a positive. Mm. The negative side of that is that now there could be accidents that could take place. Probably very low incident level um, of accidents, but we are giving them the opportunity to exist. Yeah. But what it doesn't change is, let's just say out of this whole school, there's about four teachers that are qualified, competent, and confident in carrying their firearm. This guy was a law enforcement officer for 10 years. This guy served as an infantryman for five years before he became a school teacher. This guy's just a gun nut that goes to the range yeah. every week. Yeah. Okay, great. So you guys passed this little psych test and went through a a 40-hour training course and demonstrated weapons proficiency, and now you can carry in the classroom. Okay, great. So gunshots go off. Bang, 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 bang. Guy number one, he's right down the hall. He's five classrooms away. He's got his trusty little nine millimeter 45, peeks around the corner, he identifies the threat, bang, bang, bang. And then he draws down, he's got a clean shot, he takes it, he neutralizes the threat. He is an American hero. He's <laughs> going to be plastered on the face of every news channel and every platform out there. Not these days. The good guess, guy with the gun doesn't get any love, remember? Right, right. But guess what? Now we've got, I counted nine gunshots. So we got how many victims? Three, yeah. five. Now one's on the way, they'll be here in seven minutes. Mm. Okay, so what do you do? Do you just, do you run up there and tell them don't go to the light? No. Okay, well, what's, what's the next plan of action? Hey, somebody give me that trauma kit. I'm gonna put my hand on this bleeder and stop the bleed. You cover up that chest wound with your hand. We get a trauma kit because there's about a dozen of them throughout the school. So we bring in all the trauma kits and now we're putting on tourniquets. We slap on a couple of chest seals. Oh, we got a bleeding neck. We packed that with some Cellox Rapid. Six minutes later, EMS arrives. We still have five kids alive. That's what the difference is. So sure, I support a very controlled situation of teachers having guns. I also support a very controlled situation of citizens having guns. I think the concealed carry class needs to be, and I teach it, I certify folks. Mm -hmm. And maybe my program's a lot different than other programs. And I know this because I, I monitor these other programs. Mm -hmm. You're gonna do a lot more with me than you are with a lot of people. My class isn't 45 minutes in a sim round. My class isn't 30 minutes at a gun show and you shoot one round into a barrel. Nope, it's... It's hours and hours and hours, and then you're going to spend half a day on the range. Bring the plenty of money, plenty of ammo. With that proficiency, is how you get the confidence portion of that, right? Exactly. And so, yeah, and I, and yeah, and I can also, yeah, and I can also see where a lot of teachers too that are 
um, not the type that would ever want to carry that it's, you know, why am I doing this job? <laughs> it's a, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's almost a softer approach to integrate, um, medical training and life skills, right. Uh, without having to introduce that, that external factor of the firearm. Um, interesting. Okay. So I have a, one more question for you and then we can wrap up yeah. here. So in terms of the, current, and I don't know if you've stayed really on track of it because you've been in Ukraine, but in terms of like the current movement, maybe where you're located or in schools in general, are you seeing momentum toward this type of training besides, I mean, obviously you saw that uh, nice sign there, but are are people starting to shift? Are you starting to get more interest? Is there, um, you know, have people had enough to where they're starting to look for alternative solutions like this? So, Yes. Huh. Um, so we've been working with some local college campuses, training the police forces on the college campuses, as well as some of the staff. Um, we've gotten some great support from NASCAR. We've been in talks with the PGA, the pro golfers. Um, and then we've been working with some other local school districts. We've really focused and, you know, I'd like to have a much larger of an organization to be able to touch a lot more lives and train a lot more people. Um, I just don't have the, the amount of coverage that I would like. Maybe it's because when you come to one of my classes, you're going to come to a really, really good class. This is something that I've done for the last 20 some years and I'm really passionate about what it is that I do. So I have a certain standard that I like to teach to. We're gonna have fun. We're gonna laugh. Maybe some people might cry. I'm gonna tell you a lot of stories and we're gonna tie those in to this training scenario. And you're gonna do endless repetition. So I don't like to train to a time. I like to train to a standard. So people are, well, how long is the course? Well, I'd like to tell you it's four hours. <laughs> but I really like what I do. And I really, and you're going to really find that out when you're in my course. They're so like, well, this, really, this guy loves this stuff. <laughs> so yeah. it's probably going to be a six-hour course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but it's not going to be that long six hours. You're like, oh, looking at your clock, I'm ready to go. Yeah. You're like, wow, that was, that was great. And because of that, I, I just... Maybe I spend too much time, you know, training this stuff because that I, I'd rather, I'd rather you know it. So I've gotten a lot of traction and we're covering down on as much as we can, but without having a lot of folks within the organization, because I really like to do a lot of the teaching myself. Um, I don't try to do this as a business standpoint. I yeah. do this. I want to be out there front facing and teaching. Um, but we've been putting a lot of emphasis on Ukraine and helping with the war there. And a portion of that is because it's summer. So yeah. there's not a lot yeah. of teachers in the school system. Yeah. So we're uh, <laughs> hoping to ramp up the school systems back here in the United States. Not that we want to no, not worry about the U.S. and the schools right now. Well, no, because they're not at work. So we're, yeah. we're catering towards Ukraine and the folks over there that are dying and, and really need our help. Um, and I wish there was 10 of me, but yeah, 
so there's well that's why we're gonna train more people um well, thank you for yeah thank you for sharing that well i'm very grateful for your time i deeply appreciate well, everything you. that you're you've done in ukraine and um i know that you're headed back as you had mentioned so um i would definitely love to have you back to talk about your experience after you return and i know you got some media yeah. hits lately too um you had two mainstream media outlets covering your work there isn't that correct yeah so dr phil catch me outside uh then nice. you can <laughs> now we were on uh, good morning america nice. and then abc world news tonight nice so you can you can catch us on there elite veterans is going to be your keywords uh, to mm -hmm. look that up but then uh if there's any school teachers out there listening or anybody that is affiliated with some school systems we would love to come out there and work with you guys we'd love to come out there and 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 teach and train and make a really really fun time and a great learning experience um so you guys just reach out try to find me um and send me an email i'm very responsive missionmedictraining.com my email my phone number everything is listed down there so please anybody that's got any relation to schools let's talk uh i just i'd like to come out there and do some training uh, if you're close by, you know, somewhere in the state or nearby, you know, I'd, I'd like to come out there and, and do some demos for you guys. That's awesome. Thank you, Kenny. Great. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you very much. And I look forward to recapping with you after your next adventure in Ukraine that will uh, end safely, just like the last one. And yeah, we appreciate your time very much. Thank you so much for everything you do. Cheers. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.